You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. This morning we're going to read... Verses 5 through 14. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 through 14. Again, this is a long passage. You're not going to need to stand for this. But do listen attentively. Actually, we'll start in verse 4. And this is speaking about Jesus. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And... You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is God's word. Let's pray. God, this is a difficult passage in many ways. It will require a lot of our attention. So we pray, Lord, that you would give us a special measure of patience, of the ability to tune out distraction. Give us a hunger to really understand your word. And Lord, speak now to us through it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a bulletin, I'll just say this from the outset, you'll see a bunch of Old Testament passages listed in there, and I would strongly encourage you to follow along in your own Bible, especially when we come to our second point. I think that will make this a lot uh, clearer and uh, more useful for you. Well, as you know, Christmas is around the corner, and Christmas time is the season when the general public is most exposed to the idea of angels, because we hear about angels in Christmas songs and see angels in nativity displays and atop Christmas trees. But while in popular culture, angels are a cute accompaniment to the Christmas season, In many places and to many people, angels are viewed in an entirely different, much more serious way. Because angels are a significant feature in a number of different spiritualities. 
The New Age movement urges people to converse with angels, claiming that they can provide us with mystical experiences or miracles. Islam claims that the angel Gabriel revealed the Quran to Muhammad, birthing the Muslim faith. Mormonism claims that the angel Moroni revealed the Book of Mormon to Joseph Smith, beginning that religion. The Jehovah's Witnesses teach that salvation is available through Jesus, who they claim is the Archangel Michael. And right now, many charismatic Christians in this country have an intense interest in so-called deliverance ministries, which try to make humans active combatants in the war between holy angels and demons. There are a lot of things taught about angels in our world today. What's the truth? How should we think about angels? Well, last week we started a study in the Bible's book of Hebrews. And the opening verses of that book declare, God has spoken. And today we have access to God's truth through His written word, the Bible, which is the only reliable source of spiritual insight. And today we come to a biblical passage that teaches us much about angels, that they exist, that they are powerful and important supernatural beings. And yet, for all of the angels' power, might, and glory, Jesus is better. That's what we're going to see today in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 through 14. And today we're going to ask three questions. First, what does God say about the angels? Second, what does God say about Jesus? And third, what does God say to us about Jesus and the angels? Let's start with the first question. What does God say about the angels? I don't know if you noticed, but a lot of today's passage was quoting from the Old Testament. In fact, there are seven quotations from the Old Testament in our passage this morning, some of which are about angels and most of which are about Jesus. And our author quotes all of this material to set up a contrast, to prove that Jesus is better than the angels. Why does he want to make this point? Well, let's remember what Hebrews is all about. Our author, who we cannot identify, is writing to a church of professing Christians who are unsteady in their faith. Our author fears they are drifting away from Christianity and drifting towards Old Covenant Judaism, the religion described in the Old Testament. And so our author is writing to these folks saying, don't leave Christianity, hold fast your confession of Jesus. And he tells them why they should do this, because as he shows again and again in this book, Jesus is better than everything in Judaism. Now, how do angels relate to this argument that Jesus surpasses Judaism. At this point in the book, what our author is trying to do is show that God's revelation in Jesus is better than God's revelation in the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament. We saw the first part of this argument last week, that while the Old Testament is certainly God's word, it is fragmentary, diverse, and obscure. But God's ultimate revelation took place at just one time, in just one place, in just one clear way, in the person of Jesus, who is truly God and truly man. Jesus is a better disclosure of God. 
That was the first part of the argument. Now this is the second part. Jesus is better than the Old Testament because God's Old Testament revelation came through the angels. God gave it through the angels to give to people. Hebrews 2.2 makes this clear as it speaks about the message declared by angels. And that message is the Old Testament law. Now you might say, well, I've read the Old Testament and I never saw anything about angels giving the law in there. And that's true, it's not in the Old Testament. But this was widely believed by ancient Jews and it is clearly taught in the New Testament. In Acts 7.53, Stephen charges his audience of unbelieving Jews saying, You who received the law as delivered by angels did not keep it. Or Paul says in Galatians 3.19, The law was put in place through angels. So the Old Testament law was given by God through angels. But we're going to see today Jesus better than the angels. And the point is this. We need to listen today to the message that has come through the superior source. We need to listen to Jesus' message, the gospel. Jesus is God and man. Jesus has died for our sins and risen. And salvation is available only through repentant faith in Him. That is the supreme message of God. And our author wants his audience to understand that they must not reject the gospel by going back into Judaism, which was a message merely transmitted by angels. They need to stay with the better message from the better source, and that's Jesus. That's the big idea. Now, what we're going to do in the rest of our first point is look at what our author has to say about angels here in Hebrews 1. And he's got three things to say. Number one, the angels worship Jesus. Look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6. And again, when he, that's God the Father, brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Probably this is a quotation from the Greek translation of Psalm 97, 7. What's it mean? And when the Father brought the firstborn into the world, and we'll talk about that in a minute, the Father directed the angels to worship the firstborn. Now, who is this firstborn? Well, it's Jesus. Firstborn is a title consistently applied to Jesus in the New Testament. Romans 8.29, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Or some verses you guys read recently in Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the firstborn from the dead. Now, sometimes people see this word firstborn and they imagine that what this is saying is that Jesus is a created being. That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses teach. That there was a time, a long time ago, when the Son did not exist. And then, at the start of creation, the Father created Him. Friends, that is wrong. We've got to understand this term firstborn in its biblical context. And that's Psalm 89, verse 27. In Psalm 89, 27, God says about King David, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So firstborn's got nothing to do with createdness. It's a position of dominion and prestige. It speaks of being the heir, the one who will possess and rule the inheritance. That's the idea. The firstborn is the preeminent ruler. 
That's what God said about David in his day, and that's who Jesus is forevermore. He is the great king. Now look back at Hebrews 1-2 where it says, Jesus has been appointed the heir of all things by his father. It's the same idea. Jesus is the firstborn. And we're told that he came into the world. Now sometimes preachers and scholars take this as speaking about that time when the risen Jesus returned into the heavenly world to receive worship from the angels and exaltation from the Father. And that is possible. Because much of this book talks about that moment when the risen Jesus ascended back into heaven and was exalted. But the Greek word translated world here almost always means the populated world below. And I think that's how we should take this. I think verse 6 is describing that time when God the Son left His glory above and humbled Himself by entering this world and taking on true humanity. And when that happened, the Father told His angels, Worship Jesus. Now who's greater? The one that worships or the one that is worshipped? It's the one that is worshipped. So Jesus is better than the angels because they worship Him. Number two. Jesus is better than the angels because the angels serve Jesus. Look at Hebrews 1, verse 7. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. This quotes Psalm 104, verse 4. Psalm 104 is about God's greatness in creation. It shows that God is sovereign over every aspect of creation and everything in creation advances God's purposes. Now, Psalm 104, verse 4, poetically describes how the winds and fire serve God, just like the angels do. Understand, the psalmist is not saying that the angels are wind or fire. This is a poetic way of saying the natural elements serve God, just like the supernatural angels serve Him. And just as the wind and fire are powerful natural forces, God's angels are powerful supernatural forces. In Daniel 8 and Revelation 19, mortal men see an angel in its unveiled glory and they fall to the ground. Because angels, both holy and demonic, are immensely radiant in their true form. To actually see an angelic creature is to taste a small glimpse of the powers of heaven, and that is a terrifying and awe-inspiring thing. The angels are radiant. They're also immensely powerful. Psalm 103.20 says, Bless the Lord, O you His angels, you mighty ones. 2 Peter 2.11 says, Angels are greater in might and power than people. And in the Bible, we see angels doing some really amazing works of power, executing his, God's fearsome judgments on Egypt or on Jerusalem. In Revelation, it's angels who unleash the most terrifying judgments in the history of the planet. 2 Thessalonians 2 and Revelation 13 tell us that demonic fallen angels are able to create false miracles that deceive people. Angels are immensely powerful. But how does Psalm 104 view them? As ministers, or the term means servants. Servants of whom? 
Well, Psalm 104 is about how all creation serves God. The angels are part of that. Angels are servants of God. Say, what's that have to do with Jesus? Well, the opening verses of this book tell us Jesus is God. He shares the divine nature. He is a source of the light of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. He does what God is said to do in the Old Testament. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. And Hebrews 1.4 says, Jesus has become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. In his nature, Jesus is truly God. And of course, as God, he is superior to the angels. But now he's taken on true humanity. And after his resurrection, Jesus, truly God and truly man, ascended back into heaven. And we saw last week that as a man, Jesus has been exalted by the Father. Ephesians 1 says, The Father worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. A man now outranks the angels. Jesus, the God-man, has all authority in heaven and on earth. And so Jesus is better than the angels, and indeed the angels serve him. All right, now we come to the third and final statement made about angels in our passage. Look at Hebrews 1.14. This is the only part of our passage today which is not a quotation from the Old Testament. And this tells us Jesus is better than the angels because he orders his angels to serve and assist his people. Hebrews 1.14, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Angels are ministering spirits. Now again, this word ministering speaks of service. The angels serve. They serve God. They serve Jesus. But the service they render benefits those who are to inherit salvation. That is, God uses His angels to help believers. Now, what's this look like? Well, we're not given much detail here, are we? But there are examples in the Bible where angels helped God's people. The angels pulled Lot's family out of Sodom. They stopped the lions from eating Daniel. They delivered the apostles from prison. And, you know, if we weren't told otherwise, we might read these sorts of things in the Bible and think, well, that's a really exceptional, unusual event. But we're told here, that all angels perform this kind of service. This is a regular thing that the angels do. They help believers. Apparently, there are times when angels help God's people by intervening in our lives in maybe hazardous situations. Of course, today we don't know when this happens to us. But maybe when you lost your keys for a few minutes one day, that was an angel intervening to keep you out of a wreck. Or maybe sometime that you were totally unaware of, an angel thwarted somebody's plans that wanted to do you harm. Maybe they've kept you from facing temptation that would have crashed you down. We don't know when these sorts of things happen in our lives. But we do know that Revelation 2 and 3 teach us that each church has an angel assigned to it. And Daniel 10 tells us that nations are empowered by various angels and demons. And one likely interpretation of Matthew 18, uh, verse 10, is that believers have angels who watch over us. Now, again, exactly how this works is not certain. 
But what is clear is this. What happens in our visible world actually reflects things that happen in the invisible spiritual world, the actions and conflicts of powerful angels. And if you say, man, I don't like that, that scares me, take heart, friends, because this verse teaches us that if you're a believer, God has your back. He has powerful servants who help us. We don't know when they render us aid or what their aid is. And God doesn't think it's important, apparently, to tell us. But we do need to know that God protects us and helps us and sends his angels to do it. But that is not to result in the praise of the angels. It is to the praise of God's glory because the angels serve him. So Jesus is better than the angels because he directs the angels to assist his people. Uh, so this first point tells us that while the angels are mighty, they are inferior to Jesus because they worship Jesus, they serve Jesus, and they serve Jesus by helping us who are believers. Now this brings us to our second point. What does God say about Jesus? In the rest of chapter 1, there are five quotations from the Old Testament that teach us who Jesus is and why he is superior to angels. And we find the first two quotes in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. For which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Let me say two things from the start. First, these two quotes come from two different books of the Old Testament by two different human authors. But... Our author attributes both of these quotes to God. Friends, God has spoken. He has spoken in His Word. And what the Bible says, God says. And verse 5 reminds us of this. Whether it's something from the Gospels, or a letter of Paul, or an Old Testament genealogy, it's all God's Word, and it's all useful for us. 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Every bit of the Bible understood correctly will help to teach us and correct us and grow us in godliness. So friends, we need to spend time immersing our minds in God's word. Second, I want you to see that the Old Testament quotations here are presented in a rhetorical question. And the question is this. To which angel did God ever say these two things? And the answer is, to no angel. But what God has not said to an angel, he has said to his son. The point here is, Jesus is great. Jesus is unique. Jesus has no parallel in creation and especially among the angels. Now let's look at the quotations themselves. And we'll start with the second one here in verse 5, which tells us that Jesus is God's Son, the culmination of the monarchy of Israel. We read, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you have a Bible, I would urge you to turn there. 2 Samuel 7. And let me give you some background. God is making some promises to King David. Now, David was Israel's second king. The first king, Saul, came from a different tribe and a different family. 
But Saul sinned terribly against the Lord, and so God took the monarchy from him and his family and gave it to David. Now, in 2 Samuel 7, God promises David, nothing like this will happen to you or your family. David and his sons will remain on the throne. Look at 2 Samuel 7, verse 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So God says to David, you and your sons will become a dynasty. Verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers... I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. God promises that when David dies, he will be succeeded not by somebody from some other family or tribe. He will be succeeded by his own biological son whom God will establish as king. Verse 13. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Who is this talking about? Well, often we look at these verses and we see the language that God is father and the king is son and the word forever is there, and we say, oh, this is all about Jesus. But be careful, because how does verse 14 continue? When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes, the wounds of the sons of men. Is that talking about Jesus? Absolutely not. Jesus did not commit iniquity. Jesus is without sin, Hebrews 4.15 says. So God here tells David, you're going to be succeeded by your own biological son. He's going to sin against me, and I'm going to discipline him. That's not talking about Jesus. That's talking about Solomon. We get confirmation of this in verse 13. He shall build a house for my name. That's the temple in Jerusalem, which Solomon built. So here God is declaring the future. This is what's going to happen to your son Solomon. But despite that, God makes a promise. That when Solomon takes the throne, he will be treated by God as God's own son. And he will have reason to regard God as his father. And this is important to understand the rest of the sermon. This is the relationship God promised to David's heirs, the kings of Israel. Now, we might wonder, well, what in the world does this then have to do with Jesus? Why does Hebrews quote this passage and say it's about Jesus? Because look at verse 13. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Look at verse 15. My steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Even though Solomon will sin, that's not going to be the end of David's dynasty. It will continue beyond Solomon's sin, beyond the sin of Solomon's sons. This dynasty, this kingdom will last forever, God says. And logically, there's only two ways that could happen. Either there's going to be an unbroken succession of kings that lasts forever, or there's going to be one king who someday takes the throne and never dies, who lives eternally. And a few centuries later, God clarified which of these two options he meant in Isaiah 9. To us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth 
and forevermore. The last occupant of David's throne is an immortal king who reigns forever. And that is how 2 Samuel 7 relates to Jesus. Jesus fulfills God's promise to David. Jesus is how David's dynasty lasts forever because the risen Jesus is not going to die again. He will reign endlessly. So this promise of an everlasting throne points to one who reigns forever. And this promise that the Israelite king could be regarded as God's son ultimately points to the one who is God's son, not just because he succeeds to the throne, but because he shares the divine nature with the Father. That's 2 Samuel 7. So God is, Jesus is God's son, the culmination of the monarchy of Israel. Right, come, we come now to the second quotation that speaks of the son. And this one tells us Jesus is God's son, the solution to the rebellion of this wicked world. And we find this at the beginning of Hebrews 1.5, where it says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. This comes from Psalm 2. If you've got a Bible, turn to Psalm 2. There we go. This is a psalm of David according to Acts 13. Here's what David says. Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, this describes something we see in world history and something we see in our time, in our culture, politics, entertainment, and in our own lives. There is an evil desire to be free from God. This is particularly true of the elites. They feel shackled, right? They want to be free. They want to do what they want to do without any accountability. And despite all their protestations to the contrary, in their hearts they know there's a God. But they, they rage, and so they rage against Him and they rebel. And understand that this is not a uniquely 21st century American problem. This is true of every society across history. Friend, what is the only thing that the postmodern secular West agrees with Islam about? and communism, and militant Hinduism, and medieval Catholicism, and ancient Rome, and ancient Babylon, and ancient Egypt. Opposition to the living God. A desire to be rid of Him. To worship anything else, chiefly ourselves. That's the essence of sin, right? I want to sit in the place of God. I want to say how I should live and what's right for me. And so do you. That's the human condition. And the elites on earth scheme, thinking, let's get rid of God and his anointed, his Meshiach in Hebrew, his Messiah. Now, in David's day, Meshiach meant the kings and priests of Israel. It was not yet clear that there was going to be just one king at the end. And so when David wrote this, he's writing about the nations rebelling against God and God's anointed king, the king of Israel, David and his sons. See, God had promised in Deuteronomy 28 that if Israel obeyed him, he would make Israel the head of the nations. And so David sees the wicked nations rebelling against God as rebelling against God's ordained rulership over the world through Israel and her king. Now, how does God deal with this rebellion? When the whole world defies God, is God afraid? Is he worried he's going to lose his grip? Nope. Psalm 2.4 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. 
The rebellion of our world is an absurd expression of futile rage. Isaiah 40 says, The nations are like a drop in the bucket. They're like dust on the scales. All the power of this world is nothing before God. Could fleas topple Godzilla? Could cavemen defeat the U.S. military? Could a slingshot outgun a hydrogen bomb? Those things would have a better chance of happening than people defeating God. The clueless arrogance of wretched sinners makes God laugh with scorn, and it provokes his righteous wrath. Look at verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Look at the world and we say, it's so bad. What's God doing about it? This is always God's plan. He, he will install a king who will defeat the rebels and maintain his peaceful order and rule in righteousness. That's always been his plan. And when each Davidic king came to the throne, this was God's word to them. Psalm 2-7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Just like what we just read a minute ago in 2 Samuel 7. When each king came to the throne, God said, I'll regard you as my son and you can look to me as a father. You say, well, what's that mean? Psalm 2-8, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces. God offered to give his righteous, obedient king victory after victory to the ends of the earth. That was God's model for the Old Testament order. But Israel's kings tragically failed. They didn't pursue God's righteousness. They joined the world's rebellion. But God's plan wasn't thwarted because his ultimate plan was always to bring about one supreme king who would rule forever. The ultimate anointed one, the Messiah. One who is God's son, not by decree, but by his very nature. And again, friends, this is Jesus. Jesus is God's answer to the rebellion of this world. God's answer is still that he's going to establish his king who will crush rebellion, enact perpetual peace, and rule in unending righteousness. Friends, that king is Jesus. And what does God promise Jesus in Psalm 2? Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. That's what Hebrews 1-2 said, right? Jesus is the heir of all things. Psalm 2 points to Jesus. Now, here in Hebrews 1.5, we're told the Father says to Jesus, You're my son, today I have begotten you. How should we understand this? Not like the Jehovah's Witnesses do. Again, they think this is teaching that the Father created Jesus. He didn't. The Son is eternal. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The angels are created. The Son is the Creator. Jesus is God. He's not created. Okay, but what then is this verse talking about? When would God have said to Jesus, today I have begotten you? Well, when did God say those words to any Israelite king of old? When his reign began. When he took the throne. And when did Jesus' reign begin? In his glorification, his resurrection, ascension, and exaltation. Acts 13.33 explicitly connects this verse to Jesus' resurrection. And in his resurrected body, God has exalted Jesus and given him all authority. Right? Isn't that what Jesus says at the end of Matthew 28? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Jesus reigns. Now, let's be clear. Of course, in his deity, of course, the Son reigned forever alongside the Father. But now in his humanity, the man Jesus stands exalted by God with total authority and dominion. A man sits enthroned in heaven. And when that took place is when the Father spoke these words. And so Psalm 2 teaches us that Jesus is God's Son, the solution to the rebellion of this wicked world. All right, we come now to the third quotation that describes the Son. And don't worry, these get a little bit faster now. Here we learn that Jesus is God's Son, who is Himself God, whose righteousness has led to His exaltation. Look at Hebrews 1.8. But of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This comes from Psalm 45. Here's another psalm about the Israelite kings. This time we've got a royal wedding in view. We've got a description of the groom, the king. Psalm 45, 2. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. We have a description of the bride, Psalm 45, 13. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. And the psalm speaks of the end of a royal wedding, the aim. Look at Psalm 45, 16. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. The royal dynasty will be secure. Kings will die, but sons will be born, and the dynasty goes on. That's Psalm 45. Now, in the middle of it, we find the words quoted here. Psalm 45, verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Up to this point in the psalm, the psalmist has only been talking about the king. He's been speaking to the king. But now he says, your throne, O God. And at first it sounds like he stopped talking to the king, and now he's talking to God. But as we keep reading, we find out that's not what's happening. Psalm 45, 6, the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. He hasn't stopped talking to the king. He speaks of your scepter, your kingdom, your companions, your God. You, in all these verses, is still the king. And so the first part of verse 6 is still likewise speaking to the king. That's what Hebrews says. The psalm calls the king God. What do we make of this? Of course, the ancient kings of Israel were not God, but they represented God, his rule, his order. For their reign, they were his son and he was their father. That's probably what's meant here. But of course, they were fallible and flawed. They did not represent God well. But as we've seen this morning, their dynasty anticipates the coming of Jesus, who does fulfill the idealized description of kingship here. Jesus is thoroughly righteous. He is without sin. He will rule forever. He can truly be called God because He is divine. And as our author ponders Psalm 45, he sees all these connections to Jesus, and he sees that this king is called God. And he says, well, hey, this is one of the Psalms. This is part of God's word. And so here God is calling Jesus God. That's the logic. So Jesus is God. 
And our author promises, or sees that this psalm promises that Jesus will be anointed beyond his companions. So who are the companions? Who are Jesus' groomsmen? That's the, the original context is talking about wedding attendants. But who are Jesus' companions? Who has Jesus been exalted beyond? Well, a lot of people say, well, the angels, because of Hebrews 1.4. So Jesus has uh, become greater than the angels in his humanity. And that's true. Maybe that's the idea. Maybe it's other people. Hebrews 2.11 says, Jesus is not ashamed to call us humans his brothers. He took on true humanity and became one of us. So maybe what's being said here is, Jesus is exalted beyond all humans because of his unique righteousness and obedience and his life, death, and resurrection. That's also true. So however we take this, there's a truth to it. Jesus is authentically human like us, but he's the greatest human. He is the only righteous one, and the Father has exalted him over all things, and in this Jesus is greater than the angels, not just in his divine nature, but in his exaltation as a man. So that's the third quotation. Come now to the fourth quotation that describes the Son, and here we see that Jesus is God's Son, the unchanging eternal creator who brings all things to their conclusion. Hebrews 1.10. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. This is Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27. In Psalm 102, the psalmist is enduring terrible trouble, and as he suffers, he thinks about God. And he considers his problems in the light of God's power, and he considers creation. God built the heavens and the earth, but on the day that God created, he had already existed forever. And as time goes by, the creation ages, but God doesn't. He remains eternal and unchanging. And in the end, God will create again. He will cast away this aged, ruined cosmos and bring in the new creation. And our author, looking at this, sees how this perfectly describes Jesus. As Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the creator of this universe and the one to come. As God, He is eternal, without beginning or end. He is unchanging. That's actually kind of like the climax of the whole book of Hebrews. When it declares in Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is God's Son, who is the unchanging, eternal creator who brings all things to a conclusion. And this brings us to the last quotation that describes the Son, which tells us that Jesus is God's Son who sits alongside the Father and mediates all his rule and power to this world. Look at Hebrews 1, 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? This is from Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the passage in the Old Testament that's most quoted in the New. Psalm 110 is quoted throughout Hebrews. Because as Martin Luther wrote, This is the high and chief psalm of our dear Lord Jesus Christ in which his person, resurrection, ascension, and kingdom are so clearly and powerfully set forth that nothing of a similar kind is to be found in all the writings of the Old Testament. Psalm 110 is extremely important. And thankfully, we'll have a lot of time to think about this psalm later in the series. But here we just see its first verse. 
in which God invites a figure to take a seat. Now, who's this talking about? As far as we can tell, this passage was always understood as a messianic prophecy. So here again, we're talking about Jesus. God the Father invited Jesus to take a seat. Now, in ancient times, if you were around a king, you wouldn't be sitting down. The king would be sitting, you'd either be on your face or standing up. But the Father, the ultimate king, tells Jesus to sit. And not just to sit over there somewhere, but to sit beside him as his equal, at his right hand. And in the Bible, the right hand of God is often used to describe the outworking of God's power. So Jesus takes a seat as God's equal, charged with wielding all of God's power, bringing about all of God's purposes. That's the idea. And again, we see here with absolute certainty that Jesus is greater than the angels. No angel has ever been asked to sit in God's presence or take his throne or mediate his rule to this world. But Jesus has. Jesus is better. So to sum this up, he is the fulfillment of God's promises to David. He is God's answer to the evil of this world. He is himself God and utterly righteous. He is the eternal, unchanging creator, and he sits beside his father. Jesus has no parallel in creation. He is infinitely superior to the angels because he's God's son. Now that's our passage. And there's been a ton of theology this morning, right? About the angels and Jesus. You say, oh man, I'm, my, my mind is like overcome with this. What do I do with this? All right, that's the last point. And I'm going to preach here. It's not teaching anymore. It's going to be preaching. What does God say to us about Jesus and the angels? Let me give you three applications. Number one, friends, we've got to worship Jesus. He is the ultimate revelation of God, and he has told us plainly in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There is only one way of salvation, and Jesus has told us what it is in Mark 1, 15. Repent and believe the gospel. Friends, we're all ruined sinners. We have all offended God with our lives. We have all worshipped ourselves and chased the flesh what looks good and what feels good and what makes us feel important. We have all danced to Satan's tune and believed the lies of the world. And Jesus in Matthew 25 tells us what we deserve when he says, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Friends, that's how God views sin, that we should be cast into hell like the demons. But there is great news, which is God has sent his son into the world. He has taken true humanity on himself. He has lived the sinless life we've not lived. He died the death we deserve to die. Jesus says in Mark 10, 45, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. He died to pay the penalty that we owe. And today he is alive. He is reigning in heaven. He is sovereign over every moment and everything that comes into our lives. And he is coming again to crush all rebellion and to establish his kingdom forever and bring in a new creation, the home of unending righteousness. This is Jesus. And you and I must deal with him. Psalm 2 ends like this. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Friends, in the end, we're either going to take refuge in Jesus, we're going to kiss his feet, 
pay him homage as our Lord, or we are going to experience his wrath. Jesus has shown us the way of mercy. And Hebrews 2 says, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And the answer is, we won't. So where do you stand today? What does your life show about your allegiance? Are you following Jesus? If not, turn to him in repentant faith. If so, friends, the worship he requires is this, Romans 12:1. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Jesus is king. He has the right to tell us how to live. How are we doing with his rulership today? Where is your life not submitted to his rule? Make war on your sin. Bring your life into conformity with his will and word. That's the worship he desires from us. Any old person can come in here and sing some songs and walk out the door, whether they're regenerate or not, right? What God wants is our hearts and our lives, even our thoughts. That's the way we are to worship Jesus. And yes, we should come and sing praises to him, but really he wants all of us. Second, while we worship Jesus, we must not worship angels. In Revelation 19 and Revelation 22, John, the apostle, he sees some amazing visions. And afterwards, twice, we read, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. In both cases, what happened? The angel stopped John and said, you must not do that. I am your fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. We must not worship angels because angels are just servants of God like we are. Only God should be worshipped. But while the angel who John fell before was holy and stopped him from committing idolatry, there are many demonic angels who do desire human worship, which is why there are so many false religions. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not God. Demons found false systems of spirituality to seduce the unwary into worshiping them, and they proclaim false doctrines that lead to hell. It is not a coincidence that Paul writes in Galatians 1, even if an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Because there are demons that teach false doctrines that have deceived billions of people. I told you earlier that Islam claims it comes from a revelation of an angel. What did Muhammad say this angel told him? Quran Surah 4 says, Allah does not forgive other, associating others with God in worship. Whoever associates others with Allah has indeed committed a grave sin. This is saying God is not a trinity, Jesus is not God, and worshiping Jesus is an unforgivable sin. And this is a message that purports to come from an angel denying the deity of Christ. This is patently demonic. This is exactly what Paul is talking about. A false gospel from a false angel that Paul says is cursed and leading people to hell. I told you earlier, Mormonism claims an angelic origin. And they say, created beings like us can become gods. That is a blasphemous, demonic doctrine. If that doesn't sound like a lie from the pit, I don't know what does. Again, it's a false gospel from a false angel that leads to hell. The Jehovah's Witnesses, the Seventh-day Adventists, and numerous 
charismatic Christian leaders regularly give false messages claiming angelic sources. Friends, just because someone tells you an angel said something, don't believe them. And should a bright angel of light appear to you and give you a message, that doesn't mean he's serving God and you should listen to him. It could be a demon. Friends, don't worship angels. Don't chase angelic revelation. Because Jesus is better than any angel. And Jesus has spoken. Hold fast to his word and don't depart from it. You're not going to find an improvement over the gospel of Jesus Christ. Additionally, do not worship demons through the practice of sin. If God is worshipped by our increasing obedience to his will and our increasing conformity to his moral excellence, who then is worshipped when we relish uh, unrepentant sin in our lives, when we rejoice in ungodliness? You know, in John 8, Jesus says, the children of Satan are those who resemble Satan. We must not worship Satan by following in his rebellion. We need to worship God in spirit and truth. My last application is this. Be careful with the angelic realm. Yes, Jesus is better than the angels, but friends, the angels and demons are immensely powerful and glorious. If even John could be deceived, or not, like unintentionally deceived even, into falling in front of an angel in worship twice, it is possible that you or I could be deceived into worshiping a demon that offers us a vision or some mystical experience. This is one reason I often urge you not to seek new revelations through so-called prophecies or visions or dreams or the like. Do not entangle yourself with the occult, with Ouija boards or fortune telling. I could tell you some stories that would make your hair stand on end. Do not engage in new age practices, seeking some kind of a spiritual experience from an angel through a crystal or some kind of nonsense like that. Do not use drugs to have some kind of hyper-conscious experience. Friends, these are things demons use to entrap the unwary. I think this is one reason the Bible tells us so little about the angelic realm. So that we won't wind up straying into something that is very dangerous beyond our comprehension. Spiritual warfare is not a game. I see these people running around today who are transparently not serious people, who have false doctrine, running around claiming to be exorcists, thinking they're in a Ghostbusters movie, saying they're going to wage spiritual warfare. And friends, I am reminded of those Jewish exorcists in Acts 19 who actually found a demon and got beat to a pulp. Friends, this is deadly, serious business. Do not seek trouble in this area. Because if you really know Christ, spiritual warfare is going to find you. You don't need to go looking for it. But when it comes, you don't need to despair. Because 1 John 4, 4 says, He who's in you is greater than he who's in the world. We know the one who reigns over all things, including the angels who answers the prayer of Jude 9 when the archangel said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. Friends, Jesus is Lord. He is all we need. And in him we have a mighty refuge against all the powers and lies of the demonic realm. So let us remain in that refuge and not depart from him. For Proverbs 18 says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it 